This episode contains descriptions of natural disaster events, as well as some mild profanity. Please listen with care. After the October 17th earthquake, Santa Cruz will never be the same. What form the rebuild may take will be explored in a 10-part lecture series, The Idea of Planning, presented by UCSC and co-sponsored by the Downtown Association, the City of Santa Cruz, and Santa Cruz Cable TV, The Idea of Planning will give you the opportunity to become part of the planning process. And now, to start off our series, this evening's speaker, the Mayor of Santa Cruz, Marty Wormhout. I love being so tall. It's really wonderful. I've been told this picture has to go, though. Um, you know, it was really wonderful for me to see this prod show again. I have seen it before, and I'm sure you all enjoyed it as well. And I think what it should do is give all of us a message of real hope, because people were able to come together with vision and hard work and resources and basically take a plan and make it work and create out of a fairly dying business district a vibrant, wonderful, healthy and alive place and a place that all of us loved. Now we've lost that place and we didn't lose it because it was a dead and dying downtown. We didn't lose it to suburban shopping centers. We lost it in a terrible accident. And we have to find the same vision and resourcefulness and creativity and energy to bring it back again. And I know we can do that. Now, it isn't going to be easy. And in fact, I think it's a particularly unique challenge in Santa Cruz because basically, over the last decade or so, we have not been in a period in which development skills were the skills we've learned. As a matter of fact, beginning with the cry of no more dream-ins and no freeways uh, coming into town and circling around and out again and no 100,000 people on the North Coast, what we have concentrated mostly on is protecting the environment and guarding our cultural and social resources and seeing to it that we were not overwhelmed by the kind of growth that would really destroy the quality of life in Santa Cruz. So we're not terribly good developers in Santa Cruz. That is not what we have learned how to do well. And yet now, since October 17th, we are definitely in a position in which we better learn to be very good developers very, very quickly. And we also better learn that by realizing that we need each other. I think we have to start looking at each other and talking to each other in terms of our shared values and our common goals, and we have many. First of all, I would say there is a real consensus that downtown should be rebuilt. Now that may sound like a very obvious statement to all of you, but given how hard it is to find consensus about almost anything in Santa Cruz, it seems significant to me. We all seem to want downtown again. So that's a start. 
This is episode three, The Politics of Rebuilding. In Santa Cruz, the medium and long-term process of recovery was rife with challenges that evoked long-standing political divides. Community leaders would eventually find the consensus that Marty Wormhout pleaded for in her remarks, or at least something in the ballpark. But it wouldn't be easy. It would require grappling with a variety of conflicting points of view on Santa Cruz's downtown and of its economic and social landscape. A planning group known as Vision Santa Cruz was formed to make the process more inclusive of these competing views. A public lecture series, The Idea of Planning, helped the wider community engage with some of the most forward-thinking ideas of the time about downtowns. And a new city redevelopment office undertook the hard work of spelling out in detail what the broader group had agreed on. The result? A successful downtown, according to most, and one that was the direct result of hard-won compromises. But the story is by no means that simple. Politics in a place like Santa Cruz almost never is. I'm Daniel Story. This is Stories from the Epicenter, a podcast about the experience and memory of the Loma Prieta earthquake in Santa Cruz County, California. I'm Mike Rotkin, R-O-T-K-I-N. I moved to Santa Cruz in 1969 for a summer job doing research on migrant workers in California. And I was in Santa Cruz about two days and thought there must be a way to stay in this place and not go back to upstate New York. I'd been a student at Cornell before that. The very last minute, an opening uh, took place in the History of Consciousness graduate program. And Bill Friedland, the, the faculty member who brought me out here for the summer research, pointed it out to me, and I said, what's the history of consciousness? He goes, I don't know, but but there's an opening for a grad student. You want to stay in town? I applied in September and got admitted and started school a month later in October in 1969 in the fall. I've been active in a lot of different kind of political stuff in Santa Cruz since I got here. Um, I was active in the feminist movement in town in the early 70s and uh, GLBT stuff. I was on the Central Labor Council um, for 10 years on the executive committee. I helped start the union that represents lecturers and librarians, the UCAFT, that's the University Council, American Federation of Teachers. I got also got active in healthcare politics and neighborhood organizing. And as a result, people persuaded me to run for Santa Cruz City Council. And I said, like, I can't run for city council. I got out of the draft in the 60s by being a security risk to the United States because I went to my draft physical with sabotage pamphlets and disrupted the entire physical. And, you know, I'm an open socialist feminist. I'm not going to hide it by politics for people. And at that point, Santa Cruz was a very conservative town. This was 79, one of the most conservative, actually, in California. The slate that was running for re-election against me in 79 and other candidates, there were 19 candidates in that race, was against rent control, against the green belt around the city. They were part of a sort of political group that had approved the 19, going back to 1964 general plan. That general plan was for total development of Santa Cruz. It included 10,000 second homes for wealthy people at what is now Wilder Ranch, a nuclear power plant at Davenport, double-decking Mission Street. Ocean Street would be eight lanes wide. Chestnut Street, which is two lanes now, would have been uh, six lanes. That would be a beach loop. You would come in on Ocean and go back out on Chestnut. A freeway that was going to run through the edge of the campus 
through the what's now the Poganip part of the Greenbelt and then through the edge of the campus and down to the University Terrace. So they talked me into running. I said, Mike, don't worry. It's a protest campaign. You're not going to win. Don't worry about it. It doesn't matter if you're, you know, security risk of the United States and a socialist feminist. It's not what's going to matter. As it turned out, I came in first out of 19 candidates and was elected to the Santa Cruz City Council. So then the earthquake. Um, I was off of the city council, but I was still teaching at the university and full-time job and the field coordinator for community studies. I was still activist in the union. And when the earthquake happened, I was in a union meeting on the second floor of Merrill College and didn't know what was happening. All of a sudden, we're all sitting around. There were about 25 of us at this meeting. We're all on the floor. And, you know, what happened? I was sitting in a chair. <laughs> um, in the room we were in, there was a big set of windows along one wall. And everybody instinctively moved away from the windows and tried to get in. The, and then we started figuring it's an earthquake because I'm not from California, but other people knew this is an earthquake, serious earthquake. And so everybody, from that, 25 people trying to get inside the same door frame, looking for protection. And you had to crawl. You could not walk. And it went on for about 30 seconds. And maybe it was only 20 in the end or something, but it felt like forever. I mean, it felt like it was going on for an hour. And then, you know, it stopped. And so we sort of stand up and I walked outside and you could see a big plume of smoke coming, which I learned later was coming from a, uh, a house that caught on fire because the gas main broke on, on Maple Street downtown. And you could see this huge smoke fire from that, from that thing. And then I immediately started wondering what's happened to my family. And, um, and so I started going home. I'm on my motorcycle that day. I get to the Bay and Mission intersection, which is totally a mess. There's no traffic signal and everybody has gridlock themselves into so nobody can move in any of the four directions so I with no authority or anything took it upon myself I parked my bike and I got out and started backing cars up and directed traffic for about an hour at that intersection and while I was doing it talked somebody else to take it over for me because I still wanted to get home and see what was happening with my house and my family thankfully Mike's family was just fine and for the most part so was his house so, in a little while, he headed over to City Hall to see if he could make himself useful. I was no longer on the city council, but I, I'd been on the city council by then for like almost 10 years. And the city was in crisis mode. And I ended up being the main person answering the phones at City Hall because I knew all of the different public works people that were doing various kinds of things and how to get connected to them. Down In downtown Santa Cruz, a rough description would be a third of the buildings were fine, no problem, no serious problem, maybe some cosmetic stuff. A third of the buildings were just wiped out, destroyed, fell down. They were, no, no question they were gone. And another third of them were so badly damaged that there were serious questions about whether they could be rehabbed and whether you could fix them or whether you should knock them down. So the city got a bunch of engineers to go in and figure out which buildings you know, maybe could be saved or could not be. While I was sitting at City Hall answering the phones in, the, in front of the city manager's office, well, the city had decided that they couldn't get rebuilding done if they didn't make some difficult decisions right away, emergency basis, to take down buildings that were not going to be re rebuildable. And each of these decisions gets made about each of these buildings. And the city manager, and I was sitting outside of his office, when all these three generations of families would come to visit the city manager. So they'd walk in to visit Dick Wilson, the city manager, who would tell them, um, gosh, you know, well, we looked at it, and your building has got to come down. It's useless. For the, and you have five days to, uh, to uh, demolish your building and remove the rubble, or the city will do it and charge you for what it cost us to do it. That's your choice. Now, look, those are your two choices. You don't have a third choice. 
And so these families would come out crying. It's like, you know, grandpa's building. It's been in the family for three, four generations. It's going to go. We've always let that building's our family. It's our history. It's our heritage and stuff. And they'd literally be crying and miserable. And, and I watch this parade of people while I'm busy dealing with phones and emergency issues. Louis Rittenhouse, who owned six major properties in downtown Santa Cruz, and his father, who was alive at the time, Emmett uh, Rittenhouse, came in to visit with Dick Wilson about their buildings because they had two of them. Three of, building, of their buildings had already were destroyed completely, but I think they had two or three that they had to make a choice about. They were not crying. Louis was just listening. But Emmett, if you've ever seen a movie where Snidely Whiplash is rubbing his hands together as the girl is uh, tied to the railroad tracks, and he's, and he's rubbing his hands and he's going, uh, and making a kind of a laughing noise as he rubs his hands at the prospects of the evil he's about to do, Emmett was literally making that gesture with his hands, rubbing his hands together and saying over and over and over again, what an opportunity, what an opportunity. Now we can finally get downtown Santa Cruz to be a closed mall and we can get rid of these hippies and these bums and these beggars and homeless people that are messing up the streets and stuff. We can be just like Capitola, 41st Avenue. So he's excited that this is an opportunity for him to rebuild downtown in the way he wants to have it rebuilt general view right after the earthquake about what should happen to downtown Santa Cruz, you had a lot of progressive people, citizens and residents, who thought it should be a park. Why do we have to have businesses anyway? They were not schooled as I had been about the need for revenues for a city. So they were going like, well, why not? Let's not rebuild buildings. Let's make plazas and open spaces and green space. And literally, let's make Pacific Avenue twice as wide. And why do we need business at all downtown? And the business people on the other side have Emmett Rittenhouse's view of it. Let's make a closed mall that's no more open space at all and completely shut it in and we get to control the uses and charge people with trespassing if we don't like the way they look. The city council was in a dilemma because they had a sense, well, if the city council, which is very progressive, controls the redevelopment of Santa Cruz after the earthquake, the business people are going to have a capital strike. They're just going to sit on their money. They're not going to rebuild their buildings. They're going to wait till, till people are pissed off enough at these progressives that aren't building stuff that they'll eventually turn to the conservatives and elect conservatives to the council who can get the redevelopment going. With this hotbed of political tension, the city council knew they couldn't just do business as usual when it came to the rebuilding process. But the progressive majority was loath to cede too much control to the pro-development contingent of the business community. What they finally landed on was the creation of a dedicated planning group that would bring together these disparate voices and interests. Now, in order to do that, the city council, along with the business community, represented by the Chamber of Commerce and the Downtown Association, are creating a planning group. And this planning group consists of 36 members, and it very optimistically is based on shared power, and half of the members of that group are being appointed to represent business interests, and half of them are being appointed to represent public interests in the community. Putting together such a diverse group and expecting them to agree on a direction for rebuilding was a big ask but both sides of the political equation knew that there would be little accomplished without the other side's assent. Because if plans come to the council that are so controversial that in fact 
20 people liked that plan and 16 people didn't like that plan, I assure you that is a plan that will never move forward. Because if there's anything people in Santa Cruz know how to do very well, it's block projects. <laughs> the way that we will produce projects that won't get blocked is to be very cognizant of each other's opinions and respectful of each other's opinions and to try to work toward consensus in the planning process. name is uh, Jim James, formerly uh, Pepper. I uh, was a professor of environmental studies at the University of California Santa Cruz campus from uh, 1970 to 1995. The campus, of course, is an overwhelmingly beautiful and uh, serene place to uh, begin an academic career and uh, turned out to finish one as well. Shopped locally and bought locally and was uh, part of the invisible academic uh, community that existed at that time in Santa Cruz. I was pretty much an unknown commodity until I uh, stepped into the breach as a result of the uh, earthquake. It began to sound like the city really didn't know what to do next. I was teaching a class the next quarter titled The Idea of Planning. So I decided that uh, I'd see if I couldn't put a lecture series together in conjunction with that class that would be given to the, the community-wide that uh, would help us think of what to do next and how rebuilding might take place and what made downtowns great anyway. I put a series of uh, 10 speakers together. Some of them were nationally known folks uh, Marty Wormhout was the only local that spoke. William H. White Jr. came out from New York. Why a downtown? Why put all this energy, psychic energy and money into an institution that's doomed? Now, obviously, I don't believe this or I wouldn't be here. Don't think I have to plead the case here, but I would like to give one, well, several <laughs> reasons why the answer is that the downtown is as vital as ever. And uh, John Friedman, who was the... Uh, head of the planning school at UCLA, uh, agreed to give the final lecture on what next and, you know, the politics of recovery. Alan Jacobs, who had been the planning director of San Francisco, was a personal friend, and he came down to talk about great streets, and Claire Cooper Marcus came down, another personal friend of mine from the Berkeley faculty, came down to talk about housing. You now have the opportunity to build right in this town in a couple of ways, at least a couple of ways. Right in terms of the household types that you might expect to predominate in the next few decades. And to build right in terms of form and density because we don't really need to go on repeating the same mistakes that we have tended to do in the past in building. The other notables were Peter Calthorpe and Don Linden and uh, Christopher Alexander, who motivated uh, the building of a model by members of the public of the existing downtown, and new buildings were placed in the model as part of their approval process. In the meantime, this uh, effort had picked up some real steam, and uh, the local television station was going to carry it live and tape it. 
which they did. And uh, those tapes were replayed for months after the earthquake. I forget how long afterwards they were still showing the, the idea of planning. I'd introduce people and then there would be their 45 minute uh, presentation and a QA session. What, what I asked people to do was to, to talk about, we had a topic, for example, uh, Alan Jacobs' topic was great streets, great cities. And Jacobs talked about streets all around the world and their importance for social interaction as well as just moving people. It was just a, a, you know one of our leading people in the nation. He'd been the planning director of Philadelphia and San Francisco. So and he was a wonderful speaker. And when we finished, uh, there was a QA session and Someone said, what about parking? <laughs> and and uh, his, Jake, uh, I knew him as Jake. Jake's response was, terribly overrated. <laughs> you can't solve the parking problem. So you shouldn't worry about it. <laughs> uh, the same thing really holds true with traffic. You can't solve it. You, the same... The, the best cities are the ones that don't spend a hell of a lot of money on traffic. <laughs> and that's true. You think of the street, the cities that spend real big bucks on traffic. Los Angeles spends a lot of money on traffic. You know? Uh, San Diego does, I'll tell you. And I, you think I'm crazy, but think about it. I'm telling you, there are some problems you can't solve. So they shouldn't take high priority. <laughs> you said... Yeah, don't worry about parking. If you build it right, they will come. Next question. So uh, that got us off of parking in, in, a, in a whiz. I reserved seats in front of the, of the uh, auditorium for the city council people and uh, members of Vision Santa Cruz. So they were, uh, their absence was notable, and most of them attended the whole uh, nine yards. And it... Uh, it was a sold-out auditorium every All night. you who are here this evening, I want to advise you that this was just a capacity crowd, so come next week and tell your neighbors to stay home and pick it up on Channel 5 on Friday night or listen on one of the radio stations. Thank you also very kindly for being here tonight. We'll see you next week. I'd say it was a real smashing success. I think it was a very helpful uh, catharsis for the community because we began to think carefully about rebuilding. The new year began with a mix of optimism and awareness of the enormous task that lay ahead. Jim Pepper's lecture series, kicked off by Mayor Wormhout's stirring call for teamwork, shone a light on the positive impulses toward consensus. But those good intentions had ultimately to grapple with the realities of the Vision Santa Cruz process. We had these meetings where the huge, they were all done in public, where huge crowds of the public showed up. Most of the public people that showed up were like, we want a park, we want an open space, we want green space. And the business people kept saying, they sit there with their arms folded, not saying that much, but it's like, I don't see anything that makes me want to rebuild my building. We had six property owners on Pacific Avenue on the Vision Santa Cruz group, including Louis Rittenhouse and other folks as well. 
you know, they were not forthcoming with like they're about to rebuild their building. They want to know well, what are the rules going to be? Are you going to solve the homeless problem? I'm not building a building till you stop having beggars in front of my store or people that think they're playing music, but they're just screeching and driving my customers away. And I want more parking and I want to have customers able to draw. And, and the people from the public were saying, why should there be cars? Let's have a pedestrian mall. And the business people are going like, if people can't drive by and see my store, and even if they can't find parking on Pacific Avenue, the hope that they could will bring them by to see the stores open and then they'll go to a garage or something and they'll go shopping. So they wanted to have car traffic, free-flowing, wide street, lots of parking. The, the community was on the other side of this equation. We want to have this thing like, you know, use values, as, as Bill Domhoff talks about, and like have, you know, what a nice place, not what business people want to hell with them. And it was hostile. It wasn't like it was all friendly and warm and fuzzy. People were rude and, you know, you know accusing people of, you know, putting money over human values. And, and the business people were talking about childish behavior. And it was very, just you know, very torn, torn up. After one particularly contentious meeting, I remember standing in the hallway with Charles Canfield and Louis Rittenhouse, and they were railing about something Marty Wormhout had done in the meeting, and they'd sat there completely silent. And I'd gotten to know Charlie and Louis well enough to, and I'm, at that time I was a little brash, perhaps, uh, surely uh, a little more outspoken than I am now, or I'm outspoken in a different way. I said, knock that crap off. And I went over where they were talking because I'd overheard this. Listen, I said, why in the hell didn't you bring that up in that room where you should have? I said, you guys should be ashamed of yourselves. You're sitting out here carping about the mayor and the leadership of this organization. And you have complaints about the way things are going. And yet you are satisfied with yourselves to simply come out here and bitch about it. Now, if you have anything to add and bitch about, bring it to the floor of the meeting, for God's sake, because all you're doing is exacerbating old wounds. And there's some of us that are getting sick and goddamn tired of listening to you do that. Charlie, I remember putting his arm on my shoulder and he said, now, professor, don't get your dander up. And I said, damn it, it's up. And you guys should be ashamed that I'm expecting more out of you in the future. And I expect more out of Marty, too. So uh, just leave that old bullshit behind and let's get this job done. That was going on the whole time that the public meetings were being reported on as ineffectual and you know, we couldn't get the right name and so on and so on. You know, I never envisioned myself being a come-to-Jesus type with the mayor and the leaders of the business community. But the fact of the matter is they needed their heads banged. With all the people I talked to, no one could really identify a particular turning point that moved the group past these antagonisms. Most instead remembered it as a gradual working toward consensus. But there were certainly elements in the process that seemed to smooth the way. One involved finding more constructive ways of engaging the broader community in the planning discussion. Here's Vision Santa Cruz member Larry Pearson. We got the and I'm, I might be wrong about this, the Urban Land Institute, and they suggested we have a way of doing community input that turned out to be really, really effective. Uh, we, at the time, there were just tons of ideas floating around, like uh, 
uh, ripping out a lot of part of downtown and allowing water to come in from the coast, and we have like a San Antonio or a Venice kind of kind of this. And uh, in the business community, the one thing that we could agree very clearly on, and was a divisive issue in the beginning, was that we would not want to make the downtown pedestrian only. And that uh, was one of the things they figured, let's feel how the community feels about this. So we went to Santa Cruz High School, set up 36 tables, one for each vision member, and invited people to sit at whatever table they wanted. And on the table was an articulated map of downtown without any names of streets or, or businesses on it. Your goal was at the end of that first day, it was a two-day event, that first day, to come up with what you thought Santa Cruz should do, specifically what heights of buildings, what theme of architecture. Uh, do you want to change the streets? Do you want to create a great public space? All of these things. They pasted up all 16 of these plots around the gymnasium the next day. And the member of Vision Santa Cruz that was at that table explained what the people at the table felt about the future of downtown, what it should look like, how it should function, and so on. And went, the entire group of people went around the room and saw all 36 plans. And now that that developed the idea of what you see today, the same street system, pretty much, with the one change, being able to come into the mall from the north end, but generally the same pattern of streets, no creation of a great public space. There was no thing about, oh, you know, English architecture or German architecture or anything like that, the feeling was kind of generally want to express the idiosyncrasy of Santa Cruz. And so didn't want to come up with an architectural style that had to be adhered to. And we maintained that position all the way through the process. And so things like that, I think, really gave us something to work for. The city had said we want information on first principles. How high should buildings be? Should the streets be kept the same? There were like five or six things they wanted immediate input on. And we were able to give them that from that exercise. Then there were the contributions of the planning consultants, a group called Roma, who helped Vision Santa Cruz work through some of the finer points of urban design. Here's Vision Santa Cruz member Cynthia Matthews. Uh, Early on, um, they hired uh, really superb consultant team, Roma. Great consultants, uh, really good on urban planning. Roma was very effective with us uh, in dealing with, you know, specific issues and and more general ones. Uh, What, what, uh, wanted to know what the daylight on the street would look like. What hours of the day would, uh, would the western and eastern sides of the street have have sunshine? and all kinds of interesting uh, ideas about if you want cafe extensions, which they recommended, put it on a wide side of the street and recommended that be the west side of the street because it's got more sun, later sun, uh, and those the hours of activity would be later than it would be on the eastern side of the street, which gets cold. It's the little things like that. And so they work very closely with us over all these things. And each of them, we had over 200 meetings uh, with the public, Uh, so it was a very inclusive process. I remember one night, it was after midnight, and I can't remember the guy's last, Boris Radinov, the principal from the the design firm. That's then Santa Cruz city manager, Dick Wilson. We'd had a long meeting, and he was, uh, he was, he, he had a big ego, shall we say. And he said, so I think that Marty and I, CEO, maybe the three of us, were talking to him at one in the morning or something. And he said, you know, I've done downtown plans all over the world. 
and I've done hundreds of meetings with people, and everywhere I go, people say they're unique and how much they care and how committed they are and how active they are and how demanding they are. And But everywhere I go, people are the same. And then he stopped and he looked at us and he said, but you people, you really are unique. <laughs> I said, so is that a compliment? <laughs> And he smiled and said, actually, yes. <laughs> so, but you can just imagine that to, to generate a consensus about what to do is kind of a challenging thing for any community, much less for a community as active as this one. In the end, that's what most people felt it came down to. On all sides of the political spectrum, there was real commitment to the well-being of Santa Cruz, even if the sense of what that meant frequently diverged. That, and the reality that doing nothing was not really an option. They had to work together. You know, a lot of people there had never been a developer or a property owner or a business owner, but they had to give a lot of credence to what those people were saying. <laughs> and you depended on coming up with a plan that was going to work for those people as well as for your own vision of arts or housing or preservation or whatever. So I think the active listening within the group was pretty impressive. It was a fascinating period of debates and discussions, and a lot of the work took place outside of the meetings where you'd sit down with somebody and try and, what do you really need? You know, I'll support what you really need, but I'm, you know, believe me, I also have a constituency that's beating me up that they want to have more open space and whatever. And you got to understand that. And people found, you know, their bright ideas just didn't seem to, you know, gain purchase uh, in the group, or they were interesting and we eventually included a version of that in the plan. Uh, it was a very inclusive process, and one I'll always cherish for that reason. And we had very little nasty backbiting after the downtown recovery plan was presented and approved by council. Very little, um, they didn't listen to me, or I wasn't given an opportunity to say what I felt. That had nowhere to land. The fact that we had um, such a collective interest in recovering in some form or another and then working our way through all these different possibilities and constraints. It was a, I'd say, a labor-intensive process, but the end result was a good one. You know, I think everyone knew that absent a consensus, the downtown would be empty, closed, roped off. You know, we, we didn't have a choice. And the council from the beginning said, you know, we don't have a choice here. We have to move on. There isn't any such thing as a perfect plan. There isn't going to be a plan everyone loves. There's going to be a plan we all agree to accept. We can't dither. We've got to move on. And so I think that it started with that commitment um, that the city was going to rebuild. It was going to be a bigger, stronger, better downtown than it had been before. And so efforts to delay or study further or reconsider something were simply not admitted. So despite a rocky start, by May 1990, Vision Santa Cruz produced a document of first principles that summed up in general terms what they wanted to see in a new downtown. But in many respects, it was just the beginning. Since the early days after the quake, a newly created city redevelopment office had also been working to move the process forward. And now it was their turn to take the first principles and help make them a reality. 
Here's longtime Santa Cruz activist and city council member, Catherine Byers. As you well know, there was a committee put together called Vision Santa Cruz. But right before that, at a council meeting, our city manager uh, announced that he had hired a redevelopment director. Her name was Phil Cervello. And she would be coming up from Southern California. And it was sweet because he said she's not a Santa Cruzan. And I knew what he meant, uh, that he went on to say he picked the best redevelopment director he could find that was available. And I always think he did it, and that was true, and she really was. Uh, she was so instrumental in rebuilding downtown. That was kind of the, the genesis of the organization to start the rebuilding. That's Joe Hall. The planning process going on with Vision Santa Cruz, <clears throat> and you had Seal and myself, and I'm kind of the, the part that that supervised the planning with Charlie Eady and the people that worked with him and whatever else we needed to start up to get the, the physical rebuilding going on. So that was the beginning, and that department was set up in January of uh, 1990. My name is Seal Cirillo. I currently live in Santa Cruz, have lived here for over 30 years as, and came here as a result of the earthquake. I came from Southern California. I was a redevelopment director in Southern California, uh, but I was active statewide and even nationally in my profession, I was involved in things where I was staying current on what was going on in, in economic development. Very early on after the earthquake, Seal got a call from Santa Cruz City Manager Dick Wilson. I think it was maybe two days after the earthquake. I forget exactly which day it was, but he said my name had been given to him by two or three people uh, as to someone who had the experience or the knowledge or the capability of dealing with what was going on here. In getting to work in Santa Cruz, Seal drew from her wider knowledge of development efforts around the state and around the country. I'd come from Southern California and then, you know, some of my national experience. I learned some of the important things like the outdoor dining, sidewalks, kiosks, the, uh, just activity opportunities to draw people. Another major effort of Seal and her team was to attract more office tenants to the downtown. What we wanted was a daytime, not just a nighttime population. That was, my concern was that we have a daytime to keep the, keep the retailers alive during the day. My problem was, and the tenants would say, Seal, I can go out to Research Park. I don't have to pay for parking, and I can park right in front of my door. And so that was the challenge of our downtown. What I did, I uh, recommended to the city council that in order to attract, we pay their parking deficiency fee and even buy them parking passes the owner of Haber's Furniture thanked me recently. He said, Seal, I really appreciate what you did with respect to getting community TV to go into their building. And uh, so that goes back to that, that time, too. They, 
They were, and that brings, that was bringing people down. I developed a, a landscaping grant program. So we hired a landscape architect and offered for the businesses to get a grant to have planters. I think most of them still are down there, the planters. The other thing that I brought to the council and recommended was a mural program to keep the alleys clean and graffiti clear. So we developed a mural grant program and then invited artists to come in and do the murals. I made recommendations that would require a little bit of a commitment by a business or the owner of a few dollars so that they were, they had a stake in it. SEAL's team also sought to address the challenge of homelessness in the downtown. We hired a mental health worker and police department. We've, we funded a homeless outreach officer and they would work with the, uh, with the homeless um, to get them services. So if, if Vision Santa Cruz kind of found a sort of community consensus about what they wanted downtown to be, you guys made it happen. Yeah. We could have walked Pacific Avenue and I could have <laughs> pointed some of these things out for you. Yeah, that would have been nice. <laughs> Then there was the tangle of potential funding sources that the team would have to wade through. Joe Hall describes how that part of the process set in motion almost as soon as the earthquake happened. And I went home around three o'clock because I just simply ran out of energy. And the next day I got up and that's kind of the day I think the the rebuilding process started. And I went in my little office and called up our redevelopment attorney and asked him, what do you do with negative increment? Negative increment. If you're wondering what that is, you're not alone. Here's Joe's explanation. How redevelopment was handled years ago is you would create a redevelopment area for specific purposes, building infrastructure, building housing, building whatever. And as the property tax went up, a percentage of that property tax increase went into a fund, and that was the, the basis for redevelopment. And that extra money over what was called the base year, the redevelopment, uh, was the revenue that created the cash flow to pass bonds, get loans, or just do whatever with to do rebuilding or whatever the plan of the city was. So I called up our redevelopment attorney and I said, what do you do with negative increment? Because <laughs> what happens when you lose all the buildings, the increase in value rapidly disappears because their values are taken off and pretty soon that little growth you had of let's say $4 becomes a negative $4. So you don't have any money. You have all this debt to pay off. What do you do? He said, well, Kalinga had an earthquake a few years before, and there was special state legislation. And that's what I started working on right away. I called up our uh, state senator, Henry Mello's office, and people were very cooperative. I mean, everybody wanted to help. And kind of working with Brent Hawkins, our redevelopment attorney, we came up with, with some legislation, and we did it rather rapidly. But what it basically did 
is it allowed us to make a bigger redevelopment area, but it also allowed us to change what was called the base year. So if your value went down, let's say a million dollars, you took your base year down a million dollars. So you didn't lose all the money you were getting before. So it allowed us to do a number of financial changes to help ameliorate to a certain degree the loss of value we had downtown in terms of property. We hunted all over for money. We got probably 20 grants from different agencies. We got a big grant from what's called the U.S. Department of Commerce Economic Development Administration. That helped fund the uh, Locust Street parking garage. It helped fund the Museum of Art and History. It funded the Soquel Garage. Uh, it did a lot of physical rebuilding downtown. I don't know all the genesis of all this, but uh, Marty Wormhout took a lead and they put in a half cent sales tax for, I believe, seven years on uh, local sales. And that gave us an immediate cash flow stream to start looking forward with. With the work of securing funding sources well underway, one major task that remained was for Charlie Eady and his team to spell out in detail the planning requirements for the buildings that would go into the new downtown. The Logos building was the first project built after the earthquake, and we were still in the planning process, and I've got the newspaper uh, headline says council approves new building and it has this picture of that building and then the the little sub headline is a quote from council member joe Gio. quote unfortunately it looks like a barn <laughs> and and so uh, you know when i've i've brought tours of you know i had the design students from MIT one time and you know I always go down and I say look at that building and look at all the other buildings and you can see what a difference design guidelines made on this so these all had to be expressed illustrated made very clear and codified in the downtown plan so that people knew what they were going to get all the argument took place in the planning process so that when this plan was adopted, there was no argument for a project as long as, it as long as it adhered to that. And so this was way different than anything that had been done in Santa Cruz. The other thing we did was we made it a specific plan. It's an actual legal type of plan, which if you create a specific plan, you have a certain area that you designate. And within that, the specific plan becomes both the general plan and the zoning. So rather than trying to, you know, amend the zoning ordinance and do all these backflips to try to adapt, the downtown recovery plan is and was intended to be a specific plan. Kind of all in one. All in one, right. So, and once we had a specific plan, voila, then you have a project that you can do an EIR on, which then clears all of the environmental review for future projects because you can describe the amount of square footage, the likely traffic impacts, all the things are covered. Nobody had to do any more CEQA. It worked beautifully. And they're still using that plan today with, you know, amending it as a, over, the, over time. So 
Uh, here are some dates just for your, uh, the streetscape, uh, started in 92 and it was pretty much done by 93. And so that's when that was done. And then the pictures of that are just incredible. I mean, it was like downtown was bombed out. It was dedicated in, uh, let's see, I, I thought I had a picture here of the parade with the date. Here it is. So April 24th, 93, it was officially opened. So that's four years. And then after that, it was, it was, it, we just went on and redeveloped and built a lot of affordable housing. We ended up with, you know, it's a compromise. We ended up with businesses. We weren't going to have a big park. Wide sidewalks on the sunny side of the street for most of the afternoon. It, it no longer meandered like the old Pacific Avenue did, but it did change directions of traffic. It did not have diagonal parking, which is what the business people originally wanted because that makes it very unsafe for pedestrians. There's cars backing out and, and for traffic, it's a mess. But there was parking. There was traffic through the whole Pacific Avenue, which could be closed down. We had the idea of some sidewalk cafes, which is some of the progressive people like that idea and the business people thought that was okay because they could at least control their ca the space of their cafes. And so there was a compromise. I think it was a very successful plan in that there's a lot of downtowns in America that have failed, that are, you know, they're boarded up, that are like, you know, ghost towns and towns, cities of our size, 60,000 people, 70,000, 80,000 people, where their downtowns have failed. And even though there's now a movement back towards rebuilding urban centers, some of those downtowns may never come back because the shopping's all located at regional malls. We also made some decisions to build some taller buildings. We used the opportunity to build a lot of um, upper story space for uh, affordable housing. So almost all the buildings downtown on Pacific Avenue have affordable, subsidized affordable building that's controlled by Mercy Housing or by Mid-Peninsula Housing these days, uh, where, where the rents are very, very reasonable for people that are living up there, and they're often accessible to the disabled. The St. George Hotel was a big low-income project. Back to Louis Rittenhouse, who I thrashed, you know, for his, his, his and his father's views at the beginning. He was one of the few people to build spec buildings downtown on his properties. He put up a building without having a tenant. Almost everybody else, you have to remember after the earthquake, we had faced a, a uh, savings and loan crisis, which meant it was very difficult to get loans. We're in the middle of a recession, so nobody has any money anyway. And then, you know, you got to try to rebuild the downtown where nobody's sure there's going to be customers or whether it's going to really happen. So it was hard to get capital to rebuild stuff during this 10-year period, almost following the eight-year period following the earthquake. Louis, so he had money. He paid off all his property decades ago, generations ago. And so he put up a bunch of buildings and hoped he'd get a tenant. And he still has empty buildings down there that don't have regular tenants that are used for temporary kinds of things and stuff happening. And I have to give him credit for it. He's enough of a Santa Cruz citizen to, to stay here and want to rebuild his buildings and not wait till he has a national tenant. The thing that really brought back people to Pacific Avenue was the opening of Cinema 9. Almost overnight, when the cinemas opened up, people came down to the movies. People opened restaurants to serve the population coming downtown, stores to go look, you know, window shopping. Once the, the cinema opened up, everything else just kind of fell into place is the wrong word because nothing happened easily, but it it was kind of, uh, you know, on its way. And the dot-com boom was just like this big kind of enveloping economy that was very prosperous in the region. And Santa Cruz kind of changed. The university was growing during that period. 
it kind of reinvigorated Santa Cruz because before the earthquake, it was a typical small town where nobody could agree to anything. And everybody had an opinion, which generally led to nothing ever happening. I mean, even trimming the trees in North Pacific Avenue that had overgrown had to have a special committee to talk about how to trim the trees. <laughs> and I've noticed Santa Cruz only changes seemingly when there's a disaster, like we almost flooded in 82, so we finally got the levees fixed. And downtown was not doing well financially. It was an emotional heart of the city, but in terms of its financing and business prosperity, prior to the earthquake, it was on a kind of a slow, slow decline. It was kind of sad to watch, but that, you know, there were some things prior to the earthquake trying to deal with things, but the earthquake kind of was the incentive to push things forward. You know, it wasn't really life-changing, arduous experience. But people performed really well, um, looking back on it. Just extraordinarily well. The people who did backbreaking work to the people who did the engineering and the planning, I mean, just the whole complete set of tasks that got accomplished is kind of remarkable that in a small community you could find all of the expertise and energy to do what people did. It was just extraordinary. So I felt all along like I was witnessing a pretty extraordinary display of the best that people could bring. Now, right now we're doing another period of where everybody's reconsidering everything. What will people look back and say 20 years from now? Who knows? <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. Stories from the Epicenter is a production of the University Library at the University of California, Santa Cruz, in partnership with the Santa Cruz Museum of Art and History and Santa Cruz Public Libraries. You can find this and other episodes wherever it is you get your podcasts, or you can visit library.ucsc.edu forward slash stories from the Epicenter. There you'll also find more information about the series and about each episode and additional resources about the Loma Prieta earthquake, including photos, videos, and interactive maps. Our series producer is me, Daniel Story, and I produced this episode. Until next time, stay safe.